Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen, and Rick is a clinical psychologist and best-selling author who's spent over 35 years teaching people the key lessons from psychology and contemplative practice that lead to a good life. And I'm also happy to say that he happens to be my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing really great, actually. Thank you. And I was laughing at myself that I'm working on contentment, which sounds very oxymoronic, and yet it's a really interesting and kind of culturally subversive practice to explore a genuine feeling of enoughness and a fading away of discontent, even while having goals and solving problems and caring about other people. So you're you're attacking the capitalist paradigm with inner peace? <laughs> You've got it, bro. You're a little smart camper. Well, with a lot of personal interest and satisfaction on the way. And it's sure. really cool. Actually, you gotta be honest about it too. You know, you're content, you're discontent, tell the truth about it. But it's a really trippy practice to feel content in the midst of goal-directed activity. Yeah, totally. And I think that part of what you're kind of alluding to there is this idea that we have to feel um, we have to feel like there's not enough of something in our lives in order for us to pursue something better. Like we can only get motivated by uh, things not being as good as we want them to be. And you're trying to flip the script on that by feeling already full in the pursuit of something even more whatever, even more fulfilling or just like continued contentment is maybe your goal or whatever it might be. Is that about right? Exactly. And it, it gets at deep topics. Here we are just stumbling right into it. And I'm going to integrate Maslow the Buddha and climbing mm. Mount Whitney. <laughs> Here you go. Wow. We're just, we're, we're exploring all the territory today, apparently. So what we intended to talk about today was relationships and talking about contentment, uh, maybe giving me a smooth segue into that. There are a lot of ways to be both discontent and content inside of our relationships. And the last few months have placed a lot of stress and a lot of pressure on us in just a very wide variety of ways. Uh, the pandemic has come with a ton of very obvious costs and maybe a number of costs that have been a bit more subtle, probably not for most of us because we've been really experiencing them. And one of these subtle costs has been the additional pressure and strain that's been placed on many of our important relationships. Uh, we've been put into close proximity with a very small number of people often uh, and completely separated from many others. Both of these circumstances, both of these like sides of the coin, have challenges associated with them. And today we're going to try to focus on some of the key uh, pieces of knowledge, the skills, the practices that can help us maintain and even strengthen our important relationships, maybe particularly during this challenging time, uh, but there will be plenty here that will be applicable when we are not in a uh, global lockdown of one scale or another. So does that sound good? Sounds like a great topic. And I know I'm going to be able to get back to Maslow the Buddha and climbing Mount Whitney. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to hear how you're going to integrate that. And it's possible that you uh, you came out like a cannonball for this particular conversation because you've been pretty primed for this topic recently. You've been developing a, I think, online program related to it. Is that correct? Yeah, I've never pulled together a relationship workshop. I have mm -hmm. a lot of mm -hmm. online um, programs on different topics, and 
in the back of my mind as someone who's worked with couples for 30 plus years, also kids, families, as you know, I've been married for a while and have raised two adult kids who are wonderful beacons of light shining far and wide. And <laughs> so I've, but I've never pulled it together. And so I've decided to pull it together like a really tight package over a two-day workshop. It'll be in the middle of August and it'll be live and very real. We'll do it in the morning. So it's, you know, just four hours a day, Saturday and Sunday. So it's kind of manageable to do it on a, in a Zoom format. But I'm really interested in particular at what could be called the strong heart. Uh, in other words, what's that intersection of where you're caring and kind and compassionate and nice and decent and not a jerk? Okay, great. While also establishing boundaries as you need to, separating your neurosis from their neurosis, <laughs> um, sticking up for your own needs, and if need be, being assertive and firm and negotiating real solutions and talking with people when they don't keep their side of the bargain. So that's what I'm going to pull together in that workshop, and I'm completely stoked about the material. It's just great practical material. I really love it. That's awesome. Yeah. And to kind of state the obvious, part of the value of something like that is the live component of it and the fact that you're going to be kind of doing it with people. To make another comment, we've definitely gotten questions and comments about like the nature of the podcast versus the nature of your online programs or whatever it is. Uh, so to just kind of give a thought on that real quick, you provide an enormous amount of free material. There are currently something on the order of uh, 150 hours, I think, of podcast recording we're up to at this point, something yeah. like that. Then you have infinite resources on your website. There's a ton of stuff you've written in the past aimed at relationships and couples and partnerships of various kinds. And I'm sure there will be things that you talk about during this workshop that like haven't come up in other places. But so much of the value of paid online programs of various kinds is that they're a great way to access somebody's thinking in sort of a very simple pulled together package. So if you're interested in learning more about Rick's Relationships Workshop, it's live online on August 15th and 16th. I've also put a link to it in the description of today's episode that'll have all the information for you. And if you choose to register for it, you can use the code BEWELL50. That's in all caps with no spaces, the word B, then WELL, W-E-L-L, -L, and then the numerals 50, for $50 off the purchase price. Also, if you're a healthcare provider, the program does offer continuing education credits. And as with all of Rick's offerings, there is a money-back guarantee. It's a great offering. As Rick said, he hasn't really done a relationships course before online, but he has a long history in that territory. And I'm sure it'll be a lot of fun and a lot of value for everyone who takes it. So yeah, so I think it's a great offering and hopefully it'll be a lot of fun for you. Oh, yeah. You know, it's interesting just to go back to the whole contentment, discontent thing applied to relationship. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do we enter into a relationship? Do we feel basically satisfied with who the other person is? Do we accept them? Do we feel content? Do we feel that we are having our own needs met with them? Is there a fullness, a sufficiency? Or on the other hand, when we're with them, is there an edge? Uh, a friction, a discontent? Do we feel they're discontented with us, even subtly and covertly? So this this issue of content, discontent is really, really useful. Uh, I know for myself, um, there are people I walk away from, and I just feel enlarged a little bit, kind of like maybe I was a balloon and they gave me a couple of pumps, 
burp, burp, you know, I'm a little bigger or something. And then there are other people you walk away and, you know, they could be perfectly civil or something, but you feel a little deflated when you disengage. And uh, I think that's a really useful reflection for what it's like to be with other people and also for what it's like for them to be with you, right? Mm. Can we help other people authentically feel a little, feel more seen, feel a little enlarged? Uh, when they, you know, disengage, let's say, from their interaction with us. That's a fantastic opportunity uh, to contribute in the world and to feel better yourself along the way. I'm going to close my windows because I know I'm going to zone. And I don't want you whining like a little baby. I know this is going to be part of the whole thing. You should include it for us. (laughs) I don't want you whining like a little baby because there's some little people talking outside my window And this gets at a larger question that sometimes it seems to person A that it's self-evident that standards should be this high, while to person B, they're like, yeah, it's fine. Shut up. Dude, relax, man. No big. And then you got to negotiate standards. Like how clean is the sink to be truly clean, you know? So it's I'm gonna come it's back not to my that fault one. that you just have low standards, Dad. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> here. Right, right, I like that. It's not my fault that you have that you have low standards. I like it. We've, I like we're it. applying the judgment in the right direction. <laughs> I like it. That's I like good. it. Well, commitment right, to go excellence. Go close your window, buddy. All right. Okay. So window closed. Uh, yep. Studio engaged to the whole thing. So okay. Standards uh, raised. Yeah, standards raised. I like that. So okay, all that preamble, and I'm sure that we're gonna get into a lot of those topics. On the podcast as a whole, we've spoken a lot about general skills for relationships. So we've talked about how we can become better friends to ourselves uh, and kind of develop a secure base inside of ourselves that lets us be more comfortable being intimate with other people. Uh, Way back when, when we were recording the series of episodes related to Resilient, which was a whole year of episodes, we talked about the material related to intimacy and courage. I'm sure that all of that will come up at some point in some kind of tangential way during this conversation. But over the next two weeks, uh, this episode and the next one, I'd love to get kind of specific and focus on building a good relator, for lack of a better way of putting it, kind of from the ground up. And this starts with understanding our own development and the kind of core of self that we all have that bleeds out of us in a variety of different ways. And one of the ways that it bleeds out is in how we relate to other people. Uh, A big chunk of this kind of development is really well summarized by attachment theory, which we've covered on the podcast before. But I think it would be great to offer a quick summary for people who aren't familiar, maybe. So what is attachment theory and why should somebody care about what their attachment style is? Well, the basic idea is that humans are not lizards. In other words, Mammals in general, primates in particular, and profoundly homo sapiens, we form bonds with each other, and the roots of those bonds and the patterns, the paradigms, the types of bonds we form and how we feel inside those frameworks of certain types of bonds with other people are enormously shaped in the first few years of our our lives. And the origins of attachment theory uh, go back to people like John Bowlby, uh, Mary Ainsworth, uh, Mary Main, uh, who studied uh, both how other species uh, have young who imprint on their caregivers. So 
That's the broader frame. Attachment really matters. It's biologically grounded and it's pro-survival because if you think about it, as humans have the longest childhood of any animal on the planet, as an infant's a newborn's brain quadruples in size over the next several years compared to a baby chimpanzee's brain, which will only double in size, that extended period of neurological maturation, which enables uh, the development of all kinds of capabilities that make us fully human, um, intellectual, and otherwise, that extended period of maturation creates an extended period of dependency on, of the infant on, it, on his or her or its caregiver. And so um, how do those dependencies get managed? How do parents learn to love their children? How do children learn to love their parents? This is the general territory of attachment theory. So to kind of break it down into the different elements of the theory, there are sort of two big styles of attachment. One is referred to as secure. Another is referred to as insecure. Um, inside of those different styles, there are then further breakdowns. Would you mind kind of explaining what the different terminology means? Yeah. So what the research found is that by the time kids are a year, year and a half old, so now I'd, I'd like to invite people listening to think back to their own childhood as best they can surmise or, or imagine, or they can just sort of feel the residues, the traces of, of early childhood inside themselves. On the one hand, some kids formed what were called secure attachments. These typically were two parents who were responsive, emotionally available, they were skillful, they were reasonable. They didn't come in the first instant that the kid cried but they were skillful at soothing a child and, and helping, let's say, her feel better. And children felt comfortable with their parents. One of the hallmarks of secure attachment is the capacity for repair to occur quickly. Uh, in other words, for a child to be soothed or if there's a disruption to kind of come back into rapport with each other pretty fast and to trust that repair can occur quickly. So right there, we have a theme that for people to consider in their adult relationships. How much do you really trust that repair can happen if there's a disruption of some kind of empathy or needs met or a conflict? Can you come back to each other? The other quick thing I'll just say about secure attachment is more confidence about exploring out from your secure base. And kids who are securely attached will tend to be more exploratory and creative in all kinds of ways. So one of the things that you've often said, or that I've often heard you say, I should say, is the importance of repair inside of relationships, where it's going to be inevitable that bumps and bruises occur along the road. We all get into fights and arguments, like this is part of life. Um, I argue with my girlfriend semi-regularly. You and mom have your moments with each other, what? like whatever it might be. I know, I know. <laughs> Shocker to everyone listening. But... Um, Inside of that, what I, I do think is really true of your guys' relationship is that you have a really great system for repair with each other, mm. where if something goes sideways and there's an argument, there's an interaction that's negative, you guys have great systems for kind of coming back together and saying some version of, hey, I don't necessarily agree with you, but I do still love you. And so let's do whatever we got to do to get through the disagreement and get toward the love. And I think that that's a wonderful uh, way of doing it that you guys have really modeled very effectively for me throughout my life. Mm. Well, that's sweet to say that. Yeah, totally. And, and you're getting at one of the key findings, which is that people develop their ways of relating to each other forged in the furnace of early childhood 
They develop it based on lots of little interactions. Sometimes there can be a major traumatic event, typically. Uh, it's rarely that there's a single major positive event that really establishes a, an attachment relationship. But certainly a major traumatic event can have um, big consequences. But mostly, these attachment styles are developed over the course of thousands and thousands of little interactions that uh, typically lasted less than a minute. And one of the things that's been striking to me, uh, observing families, because I did my dissertation on 15-month-olds, I have a lot of background in close observation, you see a kind of disconnect from people's story about themselves as parents and what they actually do. For example, you might have parents whose story about themselves as a parent is they're old school, they're tough, bear the rod, spoil the child, blah, blah, blah. And yet, actually, when you watch them with their children, they're very skillful, they're attuned, they're present, they're available, their tone is warm, they're not shaming, they're regulated themselves, they're not totally losing it on their kid. Exhibit A, and then exhibit B, I've known parents who could really talk the, the, oh yeah, attachment parenting style talk, and yet in the moment, they were brittle, they were dismissive, they couldn't read their kids' signals to save their lives, and they were kind of off-putting and distancing with their children. So it really boils down to, for you as a listener, what was it actually like for you as a little kid, and how are the residues with you today, and how do they shape your relationships? Yeah, and to just reinforce part of what you were saying there and to kind of return to my experience a little bit, so much of how we get our attachment style is through modeling. A seven-month-old or a 12-month-old or an 18-month-old is basically a big experience sponge. Um, it's more or less there to just soak up all of the things that happen in the world around it. And uh, even as a, as a kid or even moving into adulthood, so much of the closest relationship that I was watching interpersonally was your guys' relationship. Hmm. Um, that was the model that I was watching of like how to interact with another person that you really care about. And that model in a extent got uh, passed down to me. Yeah, And I think that that for me is really helpful because it helps us get a little bit less attached to our attachment style to put it a certain kind of way. Things happen to us that aren't our fault. Yeah. So you being a securely attached person actually has very little to do with you in a lot of ways because as an 18-month-old, you don't necessarily have a lot of agency about what's going on in your world. Mm. And sure, we can work toward a more secure style of attaching and relating like purposefully and with effort and all of that good stuff in adulthood. I'm not trying to take that away from anyone. I'm just saying that equally, if you are a quote-unquote insecurely attached person, that's not a pejorative. Like, that's not an insult. Right. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's your responsibility. Yeah. At this stage sure. in adulthood, what you do with it, what we do with it. But yeah, it's not, it's a, that's a beautiful point yeah. for us. Just because you have a responsibility or just because you got burdened by other people with something that you now have to bear into life and deal with you're still not responsible for it. And for me, just like having that separation can really uh, help make it easier to sort of face these issues on various levels and actually do something about them. So, okay, so we talked about this sort of big picture attachment styles. There's secure attachment, there's insecure attachment. What does insecure attachment look like practically? It tends to look in two kinds of ways. And I'll talk about them first. 
in terms of young children. One form of insecure attachment is called different things, commonly anxious, insecure. And this is a child who is clingy, fussy, pulling continually for caregiver help and attention, who's hard to settle and hard to soothe. And a quick sidebar here is that one of the major findings around attachment theory is the big role of temperament. Some children have a temperament that just fosters a sense of secure attachment. On the other hand, there are other children who are more challenging, like children who are colicky or have health issues, uh, maybe have more of a kind of vulnerable nervous system because they were born a couple months prematurely. Those children need to have parents and caregiver systems that are just more on top of their game. So all that's in the mix. Okay, so now we have insecure, anxious, kind of clingy, hard to soothe, fussy, actively reproachful, complaining and clinging. I think of those combined. Then you have insecure, avoidant, and of course I'm oversimplifying, but this is a child who seems very self-contained. They seem a little bit like the so-called noble gases, like helium, uh, that they don't interact. They're just kind of in their own world with regard to the parents. They don't seem to ask for very much from the parents. And yet, if you watch closely, like through a one-way mirror with your video cameras running that you can analyze the tapes later with, uh, you'll see that this is a kid who's very vigilant and very alert to where the caregiver is. Essentially, this is a kid who orbits. It doesn't get too close, but doesn't get too far away. And those are the two primary forms of insecure attachment. There's a third type that's a special category. It's called disorganized. This is a child typically who is raised in a very chaotic and, and inconsistent kind of way, and they sort of don't even know how to land. In one moment, they look secure. In the next moment, they look avoidant. In the third moment, they look anxious. Uh, they're really disorganized and chaotic. Bad news, we suffer our attachment styles, especially if they're insecure. And a key point here is that we internalize and do to ourselves what key figures do to us when we're young and vulnerable, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. So people who, um, let's say, are anxiously, insecurely attached tend to have a hard time self-soothing and self-calming. They, they tend to be internally dysregulated. And the internal sense of the psyche can feel fairly sort of chaotic or unstable, even fragmented. On the other hand, people who are more avoidantly attached often have tendencies to be very dismissive toward their own softer, tender feelings because some, in some sense they were trained to not ask for so much. So the price that is paid to maintain a relationship with the attachment figure is to be very undemanding and to ask for very little. So they can then relate to themselves in that way, in a way, in a way that's dismissive and pushing away of their own interior. We'll be right back to the show in just a minute, but first a word from this week's sponsors. Terms like the microbiome have gone mainstream, and it's great that there's more awareness about the importance of gut health and how we can support it by taking a good probiotic. Not all probiotics are created equal, and that's why I'm happy to be partnering with Seed. Seed is proud to be backed by science. Lots of science. They collaborated with leading scientists to create their DS01 Daily Symbiotic. It's a broad-spectrum, two-in-one probiotic and prebiotic that includes a proprietary formula of 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains. 
I take DSO-1 daily in the morning, and as a guy who has taken a lot of probiotics in his life, one of the things I really appreciated about it is it doesn't have that weird probiotic taste. Trust your gut with Seed's DS-01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash beingwell and use code 25beingwell to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DS-01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash beingwell, code 25beingwell. Work often means hours a day sitting in a chair, and research has suggested that prolonged sitting poses all kinds of health risks. One of the best purchases I've made over the last few years is getting a standing desk. It's absolutely transformed my workday, I totally love it, and I got mine from Uplift Desk. So when Uplift reached out recently to sponsor the podcast, I was totally thrilled. If you'd like to try one out, visit upliftdesk.com slash beingwell for 5% off your order. It's really a great product. I use the V2 two-leg configuration for my desk. That's where I work every day and record the podcast from, but they have so many different options for people. Over a million customers have chosen Uplift Desk for their innovative product designs, free 30-day returns, which includes free return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Their pricing is also really competitive, and if you're trying to save some money, you can just buy the legs alone. Go to upliftdesk.com slash beingwell for 5% off your order. That's up, L-I-F-T, desk.com slash beingwell. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. I'm always looking for ways to get more protein, and particularly more healthy protein, into my diet. And IQ Bar has been a really good fit for me. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. And today, our listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text being well to 64,000. One of the reasons that the bars have been so great for me is because they're entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, and artificial sweeteners. And you can refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ bars, four IQ mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now, our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ bar products, plus you can get free shipping as well. To get your 20% off, just text BEINGWELL to 64000. Get your discount. Text BEINGWELL to 64000. That's B-E-I-N-G-W-E-L-L to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com beingwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, 
com slash being well. When you think about the problems that have like emerged in the relationships of the people who have walked into your office, who one of the members of the partnership, and this could be, to be clear, we're talking kind of about romantic partnerships a little bit because it's convenient. Most of the time it's couples that go to couples counseling. It's not like good friends. But these patterns are emergent in most of our relationships. They just tend to be the most obvious in our like close, intimate, romantic ones. But all the like learning and lessons and content that we're talking about here, at least in my opinion, can be pretty broadly extrapolated out into most of the ways that people interact with each other. So all that kind of disclaimer said, let's say an anxiously attached person, an anxious, insecure person walks into your office as part of a couple. What are some of the behaviors that they're going to be manifesting that are like challenging for the relationship? Great question. And a key point to start with, think of these as models of relationship or patterns of relating. And in them are typically three in a particular paradigm, like anxious, insecure, or avoidant, insecure. Quick sidebar, we can have different patterns of relationship with different people. So research shows actually that a child, let's say they're raised uh, by a mother and a father, um, can feel securely attached to their father, but insecurely attached to their mother, or insecure, avoidant with their father, insecure, anxious with their mother, for example. And then it also gets interesting to think about our relationships with clusters of people, um, like groups, in other words, peer groups. We could be, for example, uh, securely attached to a mother, insecurely attached to a father, and also insecurely attached to our peer group in school. In other words, who is the other to us inside our mind? And what the mind can do is that it can fragment, for example, aspects of other people. We could feel securely attached when we're having an intellectual conversation with another person, we're connecting. While on the other hand, if we start to move into a sense of sensuality or romance or even as a possibility, suddenly we feel unsettled and on shaky ground. So this, there's a complexity here. Okay, all that said, someone walks in the door, anxious, insecure. Uh, first off, compassion. Compassion for everybody, for sure, and just to find the ways, wow, that's unsettling, isn't it? You feel insecure. There's anxiety in insecurity. Follow the anxiety. You're not so sure you're fully loved. You're not so sure you can count on other people if you have a need. You're afraid of revealing your needs because in your history, your needs were unmet or they were shamed or pushed away or you, you experienced sort of being whipsawed. One moment, your parents were doting on you. The next moment, they were shoving you out the door uh, with irritation. Like, what? And so you, you just don't know, what can, what can I ask of you, the other person, let's say? The truth is someone who's anxiously insecure often is needy because they haven't felt an internalization sufficiently of needs being met. And yet on the other hand, to be revealed as needy ooh, can feel very scary, especially as is not uncommon, someone who's um, anxious, insecure, forms a relationship with someone who's avoidant, insecure. Could you describe what that looks like? Yeah, uh, there's a classic line, pursuer distancer. So you've got the pursuer, let's say someone who's, who's maybe just naturally more extroverted, 
you know, more interested in contact, or maybe who someone who for various on very understandable reasons, like challenges they face in their life, just sort of wants more reassurance uh, than the other person is, you know, sort of comfortable giving. And then you've got this other person who becomes the gatekeeper in, of the supplies in the relationship because the person who can say no tends to have more power than the person who can say yes, right? So then you have this negotiation continually where the the seeker, the wanter, the pursuer, whatever we want to call it, the one with a hungrier heart, the one who is more interested in or valuing of interaction and relationship is trying to, you know, sort of get something in a sense, just simple stuff, attention, uh, support, warmth, comfort, understanding, reassurance from this other person for whom, now we're in the avoidantly attached person, who could feel more like a, very attentive to feeling invaded and taken from, and someone who has also probably internalized a certain way of um, relating to others that they got from their own parents of being dismissive. So in, in, in addition to being dismissive, let's say this avoidantly attached person of their own needs, they could be dismissive of their partner's needs, which mm. then creates this vicious cycle. The less you're getting as a pursuer, the more you pursue. And on the other side of it, the more you're being pursued, the more, ah, <laughs> you want to get that person, you know, just take a big step back. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's a classic model that you see a lot in, uh, certainly in romantic relationships, but also in friendships as well. I mean, I, I can think back to myself in middle school, where I was really, really good friends with a group of people. And I think that there was a part of me where, where um, I would describe myself in general as being securely attached. But if if you've listened to the podcast for any length of time, you know that if I err on a side of anxious or avoidant, it is definitely towards anxiety. So even though I was securely attached with my parents to talk about what you're talking about with my primary caregiver, I had a secure attachment style. I think I definitely had a bit of an anxious attachment style with my friends at school because there was a part of me inside that never really was totally sure that they liked me. Yeah. That was the question that I kind of had going in my head a lot. Do they like me? Do they like me, essentially? Yeah. Um, it was rarely that obvious, but looking back on it now, I think that that was a big part of the narrative as a whole. And um, the truth is, in a lot of our human interactions, if somebody's walking around all the time asking, hey, do you guys like me? I need you guys to remind me that you like me. It gets a little exhausting. Like, <laughs> that's not always the most fun thing to be around. And people, as you're saying, can get kind of like, it can be tough to tell somebody, yes, you are being demanding, or yes, you are being needy here. Now, I'm okay with meeting your needs, but the cons the constant um, unabated expression of them is definitely starting to put a strain on this relationship. And thinking about like 13-year-olds or 8-year-olds or whatever it was, I think that that was definitely a feature of what was going on. Yeah, and so you just think right there about what that's like to feel insecure, to feel unsettled, whether people actually like you. So for this person, let's say, walking in my door, it's really important to just, I think, have compassion and to really appreciate, of course, that's uncomfortable. And then to do two things, very practical, that could well be counterintuitive. Thing one is to feed the hungry bee. This is a saying from Ken Kesey, the Merry Pranksters, goes back into the 60s and the hippie days. But it's the saying of 
you know, our tendency is to withdraw from or pull back from people who are asking for something. Even at the most basic level, the hand reaches out to us. The bid, it's a bid, a bid for contact, say. Uh, we tend to lean back away. Instead, counterintuitively, it's so good to give them what they're asking for. Very often, what would satisfy another person in the moment is small and doable, startlingly small and doable. Minimally, just giving them your full attention and really hearing them out and trying to understand. That's huge. That's one. So feed them, even if it seems a little over the top, and unless it just feels abhorrent to you or inauthentic or there's something really creepy about it. And, and feed, if you can, at the deeper level that they're really longing for rather than the proxy level. Maybe the proxy level is, I want you to tell me that you like my hat. <laughs> Great. But really at the deeper level, I want to feel that you value me and care about me. You even cherish me as a person, right? You will come get me. No person left behind. Flip the other way. There's the other second thing real fast is the person who's on the receiving end is to call them to internalize, to say to them, you need to internalize this, right? This is not a heroin fix. You're going to need to get shot up again in four hours or something. You need to internalize this. And then often you're dealing with the fears the person has about actually internalization, the fear that if they really do internalize, then others will see that they're not needy anymore and will then leave them. So while you were saying that, I was thinking of a scenario in my head that I've certainly felt play out many, many times in my interactions just with friends. So this is kind of transitioning from a more intimate relationship where those kinds of communications can be like very normalized to maybe a more uh, good friend relationship where you might have these kinds of communications or interactions, but they have a little bit more um, social friction attached to them. Uh, we don't necessarily have a social structure that has been built in our culture that is predicated on like deep empathic relating. Um, and therefore, there's just kind of more friction attached to it sometimes in our interactions with other people. And the interaction that I'm thinking of is one where, and maybe this is unique to me, but I doubt it, is one where it feels like there is a uh, bid for a more kind of intimate emotional uh, level of interaction or a higher intensity, a higher tone level of interaction with somebody else. Uh, even if it's just like somebody trying to really look, you know, look deep into the eyes and say, wow, I really enjoyed that man. And my first instinct most of the time is to kind of deflect. It's mm -hmm. to sort of reestablish optimal distance between myself and the other person, mm -hmm. to put it a certain kind of way, because the container of the interior, even as a quote-unquote anxious person, feels like it's being breached in some way, I mm -hmm. guess. And and there's like a discomfort that's associated that's good with that bid for, for closeness. Yeah. People should listen. This is good self-awareness. In real time. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, totally. And I, I think that that's, that's something I've been thinking about a lot. But I think that you see that all the time in what people do. One person steps forward and the other person steps back a little mm -hmm. bit to maintain that comfortable distance that they yeah. establish between themselves and somebody else. In order to give the anxiously attached person, the anxious and secure person, the resources that they need to like feed the hungry bee, to use your language, we can't step back in that way. 
like it, they feel that and it becomes that kind of anxious avoidant dynamic. It feeds the problem. It feeds the problem. And, exactly. and I want to also be really clear. A person doesn't have to be anxiously attached yeah. to just have normal needs, including totally related point. to their background, their culture, their extroversion, introversion from another person. You yep. bet. Okay, good. Yeah. No, great point. Uh, we don't want to like excessively pathologize, pathologize yeah. this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, these are these are two words that we're using very broadly yeah. and very loosely. Yeah. Okay. But so inside of this example, if I'm the person who tends to monitor that distance, and I know that. And by the way, I think that most of us are people who monitor that distance on some level. What can I do inside of myself to like move through that moment of discomfort better so that I can give that person what they're looking for? Assuming that what they're looking for is like appropriate and all of that good stuff. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? Totally. Asking? So here's the question. And it's the dreaded experience question. Yeah, totally. You know, yeah. What comes up for you, Forrest, um, that uh, you fear or expect that you would experience if you just fully gave over to them? I think that that's definitely the the central thing for a person to like ask themselves right now who's listening for sure. Like what is the thing that you are avoiding through the avoidant behavior to put it a certain kind of way? Um, to share personally with it, I think that I have a very strong sense of equanimity, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, to like put the good spin on it or to put the less good spin on it. It's that like I don't like feeling disrupted internally. I don't like feeling rattled. Uh-huh. And I'm not sure where the dislike of feeling rattled internally comes from, but I've always been a person where like I don't like it when somebody shakes my body. Like the people who like go up to you and the friend who grabs you and like shakes you, I've always hated that. Um, and I think that it's kind of the psycho-emotional version of that, to be honest. Like you're making me feel something and you're in my container and I don't really like it. And it's like, ugh. Very and so good. there's this kind of natural pushing back against that yeah. experience. I mean, that's mine. And if you're kind of playing along with us here as you're listening, it could be really helpful to think about what yours might be. So yeah, so exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and then the question becomes, how could you increase your tolerance? There's a mm. phrase, distress tolerance. So the distress of some kind comes up. How could you have tolerance for it? How could you, for example, hold it in a bigger spaciousness or stay in touch with a deep stability inside yourself, even if your surface is shaken? Yeah. I'm thinking of something that I learned about recently for uh, for the expanded notes that I put together on Patreon for the different episodes. I was looking into the um, the research on like suppressing emotion mm. and the difference between just I, I'm forgetting the terms right now, um, but effectively the difference between just kind of like not expressing it and feeling something but holding it in versus essentially reframing the emotion inside of yourself so it doesn't pop out of your face, but you don't feel like you're holding it down in the mm. same way. And I think that this is maybe a good example of that, where the resistance happens when I feel like there's something that's that I'm feeling inside of myself that I don't like. And so I try to like push that down and the way that I push that down is probably by achieving that optimal distance with another person. And maybe a, a way to interact with that feeling that would make it easier to like approach closeness with that person 
would be to kind of recategorize the feeling or kind of Aikido it a little bit, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, where instead of trying to just like hold it down and reestablish distance, I could um, separate myself from the experience a little bit. I could take like the feeling I'm having and the self that I think that I am and try to create more space there. I think that that could be a way to do it that might that might be helpful for me to just like put some distance between myself and it. It might help me stay in the relationship for longer. Wow, this is deep. Um, right, so I want to offer two lessons that were huge for me in my 20s when I kind of left home and started to grapple with the ways that I felt what you're talking about, Forrest, mm, times mm -hmm. 100. <laughs> really, I was very, very uncomfortable with feeling anything, and I was unhappy much of the time. First, one of the things that is a helpful step with people is to take what's happening internally. And what I mean by that is not to let other people off the hook or to blame yourself, um, blame the victim, not that, but it's more like to go, it's not so much that I have a problem with you, it's that I have a problem with what I feel mm, mm -hmm. inside that's, myself. Yeah, that's that's really, really well said. That is a great, that's probably a much tighter summary of essentially what I was trying to say, where it's not that like I view what the other person is doing as problematic, just their perfectly not problematic behavior is causing me to feel an experience that I don't want to be having. Exactly. And then we move really quickly into blaming and attribution, right? You are making me feel bad, therefore you are bad. And creating some distance there between like the view of the other person as being bad because they're making me feel away versus being like, oh no, this is an experience that's happening inside me and therefore it is my responsibility is like a huge game changer, I think, for most of our relationships and interactions with other people. Totally, and it's the first step immediately toward being able to do something good about it. So actually, it's very much in a person's self-interest to do this counterintuitive thing of kind of like disengaging from preoccupations with the other over there and um, feeling that somehow it's their fault, whatnot, and to bring it internally. And one of the keys about bringing it internally is to keep remembering that you still get to ask for specific things later. You still get to exercise influence in skillful ways as you judge best with that other person while also really bringing it inside. That was one. And two was a huge breakthrough for me was involved with starting to join like encounter groups. And this is the early 70s where I was scared to death or to move into conversations with people where I knew theoretically that I needed to allow myself to feel things. And I just worked inside to open to feeling certain things and realize that I was still okay. It was okay to feel these things. Uh, it was uncomfortable, but there was usually a soft landing. It usually felt really good afterward. And also there was a kind of nobility in it. You know, there was a dignity, there was a simple, there was courage in it. There was something honorable and respectable to be able to feel it and know that you're still okay. And that, that was incredible for me. I, I couldn't believe it, that wow, I could feel this and it wouldn't destroy me and actually I'd feel better afterward and people would even like me more. 
Yeah, one of the things that I was thinking when you asked me that question, but it felt like not a trite response, but just kind of an over, overly simplified response, but I think it's actually the truth, is basically exactly what you just said. So much of it is about exposure yes. and about experiencing these these experiences in a safe container so you get increasingly comfortable experiencing them in a not safe container. And good, I think yeah. that, yeah, therapy is kind of the whole point of that, essentially. When you go to therapy, you are experiencing a safe container within which you can have these kinds of interactions or do this sort of practice with somebody else that then makes it easier and easier to do this practice kind of out in the normal world. I'm trying to find kind of the right way to put this, but I do think that so much of that uh, resistance that we feel inside of an interaction, like when somebody else says something benign, and a lot of the time in the moment, we can't tell that it's benign because it activated our material and therefore we thought it wasn't benign. But if somebody says something relatively benign or normal inside of a conversation and we get really activated by it, that's because it's touching a sensitive spot inside of ourselves. Mm. This is an oversimplification of a big body of knowledge. But one of the ways that that spot becomes less tender over time is if we just get more comfortable touching it. Mm. Like that's kind of part of, a big part of the game. And there are different ways to do that. There are you know, many different modes of thinking on like how we can do that effectively. But that's so much of it. So um, for me, part of it is about allowing an emotional response. So like, let's say that there's that, uh, there's that kind of aborted or canceled interaction that I had with somebody else where they sought more closeness, I reestablished distance, and we created equilibrium in that same level of, uh, mm. of closeness, if that makes sense. Like they took a step in, I took a step out, and okay, now we're back to comfort. If they take a step in, there's a feeling that occurs inside of my body. Mm. It is a very somatic experience yep. when this gets triggered. And to be clear, I'm exaggerating my experience a little bit for effect. This doesn't always happen when somebody takes one step in. It normally happens when it's like a much more intimate level of relating, but mm. just for the example. And part of the process for me has been diagnosing what that experience feels like and like remembering the somatic experience of it. So that at some other point in time, when I'm by myself or I'm, I'm meditating or I'm with my girlfriend, which is a much more safe container, and I have that experience, I let the emotion complete itself. Like I don't stop the emotion halfway. I let myself fully feel it. And then whatever happens, happens. If that makes me cry, it makes me cry. If it makes me mad, it makes me mad, whatever. You experience it. You let yourself complete that. And that's like a big part of that idea of like fully experiencing an emotion is a big part of a lot of therapeutic modalities. It's particularly important in Peter Levine's work on somatic experiencing where his view of trauma and, you know, there are many different views of what trauma is, but this is his, is that it's, a, it's effectively like a stopped attempt by the body to express something that it needed to express in a moment. And we get trapped in that stopped action you know, for some people for the rest of their life. That's fantastic. And, you know, Fritz Perls also back in the day talked about completing the gestalt. Mm, mm -hmm. It's like letting it complete. And it's intrigued me endlessly, and I've never found a clear answer to it. Why in the nervous system something happens where in which you can feel it that there's been a completion of some kind? Like, oh. Yeah. And then yeah. it disappears. When things complete, they disappear 
in a sense. They're, they're, they're no longer bound. It's very strange. And why that would happen neurologically, I really don't know. And yet, it seems like such a fundamental thing. When you let yourself feel it fully, it then resolves and is gone. Poof. That feels like a much more tidy summary of what I was effectively trying to say there, where, yeah, it does feel like there's this sense of completion that we can arrive to with our responses or inside of an interaction even in our relationships. I think of a lot of the um, the good arguments I've had versus the bad arguments that I've had, to put it a certain kind of way. And one of the big differences is that the good arguments finished. Yeah. Like the good arguments came to a quote-unquote soft landing. We arrived at a resolution, we established an agreement, and from that we were able to kind of move forward. I felt finished. We went way further afield than I was expecting to go here, and we definitely got uh, through fewer topics than I thought we would today. That being said, I really loved the conversation. I thought it was great. I found it personally useful also, so there's that. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to segment this into a couple of parts, essentially. This is going to be our first conversation related to this broad topic of relationships and kind of becoming a good relator. And then next week, we'll be back with another episode focused on this same topic. So how does that sound, Dad? Sounds great. And next time, let's get into really concrete tips. Yeah, absolutely. We were doing a lot of general stuff today. We'll do kind of more specific guidance uh, next week. So today was the first of our two episodes dedicated to becoming a great relator. Today, we focused on the internal awareness that can help us understand our relationship dynamics with other people. Much of that was presented through the lens of attachment theory. And inside of attachment theory, there are these three big categories, anxious, avoidant, and secure. We talked for a little while about how these three different categories relate to each other in a variety of different ways, and Rick named some of the pitfalls that can emerge for people who have tendencies in these different directions. We then went on to talk about finding optimal distance in our relationships and how we can better risk the dreaded experiences of our lives. Next week, we'll be focusing more on the practical skills that lead to effective communication and therefore a great relator. The material in this week's episode is related to Rick's live online relationship workshop. It's August 15 and 16, and you can follow the link in the description of the podcast to learn more. You can also find it easily if you go to his website at rickhanson.net. And please remember to enter the code BWOW50 at checkout for $50 off the purchase price of the course. So that's all for today's episode. Until next time, thanks for listening.